So tonight's talk, <laughs> Ooh, that's loud. Tonight's talk is on the uh, five aggregates. And the five aggregates are a classical teaching in the Buddhist um, philosophy on <clears throat> how our experience is generated moment to moment. And often the um, understanding of the five aggregates is used to um, deconstruct the tight sense of self we get trapped in uh, when we find that we cannot adapt to the ever-changing nature of life. Reflecting on the five aggregates is how we can um, untangle any place we find ourselves attached or struggling. So that tends to be how this particular teaching comes into the great body of the teachings of the Buddha. So the five aggregates... Um, the word uh, in Pali is called uh, kanda, and kanda means uh, heap, actually. So it could be called the five heaps. That's not as um, nice a title in English. <clears throat> so it's called the five aggregates. But uh, when thinking about the, um, the five heaps, I'll just name them, then we'll talk a little bit about them. So the first heap of, of experience is all the sensory input that comes in moment by moment. So it's a heap, it's a many little things collected together. Right now as you're listening to this talk, you're taking in sound, you're taking in sight, and you're taking in the experiences that are happening inside that are putting it all together um, and helping it make sense. So all those little pieces of information, um, the content of your experience, all those little things are one heap of the five heaps, the five aggregates. The uh, second heap <clears throat> is whether, the second heap is actually uh, consciousness itself. And consciousness is just uh, put in very simple terms. The fact that you're aware of anything at all, that's the fact that you have consciousness to take in sound or to take in sight. So we'll talk a little bit more about all of these um, as they come up, but uh, consciousness is also considered um, an arising and passing experience, and so it's also considered a heap, a heap of maybe of a heap of leaves or of dust on the floor that you sweep up. So you have experiences, and you have the ability to know that they're happening. Then <clears throat> another uh, collection is what do you perceive when you have that experience? So the ability to identify your experience. Consciousness just sort of knows it, but perception, which is the third heap, begins to interpret the experience you're having from the raw experience, the raw data, the sound, or the sight, and begins weaving together uh, an understanding of what's happening. That's the third heap, which is perception. That's right, we're on the... Yeah, okay, perception, third heap. The fourth heap is as you perceive what's going on, due to past experiences, you'll find that present experience pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So that heap is the pleasant quality of what's happening. That's called Vedana in Pali. So that's also, uh, it tends to uh, arise and pass with the experiences, and it's not steady. It's constantly also changing. So we have the raw experience, the ability to know it, the ability to start to interpret it, whether you find it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Then the fifth heap <clears throat> is all the psychological patterns that we have, all the ways that our mind and heart uh, work to, once we've taken in the, the initial experience, what type of relationship do we have to that experience? What does that trigger inside of us? All these different uh, pathways, all these different patterns we have inside that cause our internal experience once we have um, an impeding uh, external experience of sound or sight. So these are the five, <clears throat> five different categories. And the Buddha um, wanted to give this teaching because often these five are running together moment by moment. And if you don't see them in distinction, 
it's possible that as they're rising and passing and combining, that you'll get a little bit caught up in that process. That what will generate is a sense of um, over-identification with that experience. So we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit, how that process happens. But if you can actually separate them out, then you can actually see that all the moving pieces and you're less likely to get caught up in any one of them. But when you uh, put them all together, they tell such a convincing story that you can take a step further and feel that that story is um, a very strong indication of who you are. So, again, we'll unpack that in just a bit. But that's why this teaching comes in. You look at your experiences, you see all these little moving parts. And if you can actually see them arising and passing while they're occurring, you don't get so caught up in the process. You can enjoy the ride, but not necessarily get so caught up. This teaching of the five aggregates um, was actually one of the very first teachings the Buddha gave. So I wanted to put that in a little bit of context for what that means. You know, it's an interesting psychological uh, model just to kind of separate your experience into those five things and look at it. But just to reflect on um, where this comes in his teachings, the Buddha <clears throat> practices for countless lifetimes to become a Buddha. So many, many full lives by this, you know, this is the story. Finally becomes a Buddha, wakes up one night in India, in Bodhgaya, India, under a Bodhi tree. And it's such an astonishing thing that, it's, that this has even happened, that he spends 49 days just in awe of the fact that he's a Buddha, just looking at what it's like to be inside of Buddha's mind. And he spends a whole week just like strumming a guitar. He strums one note at a time, and it's so beautiful. He strums his infinite love, and it's just astounding. He strums his wisdom. He strums his patience. He strums these many facets of his mind, and he's just in awe of what it's like to feel that. Then he spends another week just looking at the laws of the universe and how things are unfolding, looking at the law of karma, for example. And he's just so in awe of what's happened <clears throat> that he's not, he's not that inspired to do much more than just be in awe of it. And so someone intervenes, uh, a deity from another planet, another realm, sorry, comes down and says, you know, maybe we could know some of this. Maybe we could have some of the freedom that you're experiencing. And the Buddha says, no, this is, this is so subtle. This is so profound and subtle. I don't know if I could actually convey this. And the intervention actually takes the person uh, pleased with the Buddha and he decides he's going to teach. See if other people can experience something like this freedom. So, <clears throat> but he's not quite sure yet how to convey it. And he has five friends that um, are months walk away. And there's a, there's a kingdom very nearby, Bodhgaya, uh, full of wise people doing a lot of practices. But he, rather than walk a week and try to teach there, he decides he's going to walk a month to find five friends. And I think that I, I'm maybe implying my own interpretation to that. I think that's his sense of like, boy, how would I get this across? How would I really get this across? So he has a whole month to think about it while he walks there and he has a rapport with these five friends. On the way, he runs into this, uh, this other practitioner, and they have a really funny exchange. I think it's funny. Um, so he's walking to find his five friends, and he comes across um, uh, a naked ascetic named Upaka. And so Upaka has given up, um, gone into incredible austerities, and he won't even wear clothes. And part of that is that he wants to break free of his attachments, and so he won't own anything. He just walks around naked. That's Upaka's uh, attempt to be free. And Upaka sees the Buddha walking by, and he's quite taken with him. He has this sort of glow about him, sense of peace, sense of happiness, and you know, a lot of people would have sort of ordinary happiness, but there's something of the Buddha that's standing out to Upaka, and Upaka um, uh, is quite taken. He says, your countenance, friend, is serene. Your complexion is pure and bright. 
Uh, in whose name, friend, uh, have you retired from the world? Who is your teacher? Whose dharma do you profess? So this is the Buddha's, one of his first attempts to try to get the message across. And so he gives it his first shot. <clears throat> he says, uh, um, I have overcome all foes. I am all wise. I am free from stains and all things. I have left everything and have obtained omniscience of craving. I'm sorry, emancipation from craving. Having myself gained knowledge, whom should I call my master? I have no teacher. No one is equal to me. In the world of men and gods, no being is like me. I am the holy one in this world. I am the highest teacher. I alone am perfectly ever enlightened one. I have gained coolness and I have coolness. I have gained coolness and have obtained nirvana. To set the motion of the wheel of the Dharma, I go to the city of Benares. I will beat the drum of immortality in the darkness of this world. <laughs> so that's quite a calling card. That's, a, that's, his, like, that's his business card. And it hardly fits on a, you know, a little 2 by 5 but 2 by 4 but that's so <clears throat> his first attempt. And the, the guy is taken. You know, he's, he's taken and says, hmm, you profess then that you are worthy to be uh, victor everlasting. And Buddha says, like me, all victorious ones who have reached extinction of their defilements. I've overcome woeful states. Therefore, Upaka, I am the victorious one. I think he's trying to actually uh, see if he can win over Upaka, see if he can have a follow-up conversation. But um, Upaka says, uh, it may be so, friend. But he shakes his head, uh, took another road, and went away. <laughs> so, <clears throat> not sure what happened to Upaka, um, but that first attempt to sort of saying like, whoa, look what happened. I woke up, I'm a Buddha. This is awesome. And Upaka said, yeah, you have some serenity to you, but um, that's, that's quite, a, quite a step into your teaching. Um, so he decides to go the other way. So the Buddha walks on, and he gets to find his um, Bible friends. And he gives his first, um, his first teachings that actually liberate other people. And so the first teaching he gives is on the middle way. So not going to the extremes of chasing pleasure your whole life. Not trying to counter that by chasing um, difficult experiences to prove that you're free from craving. But seeing if you can rest in the middle of all experience intimately, but not chasing one thing or rejecting another. And within that, he also says that if something has a birth, it has to have a death. If something has a beginning, it has to have an end. So he gives his first teachings on impermanence. And from that, one of his five friends has a momentary awakening. So that's the first true uh, conveyance um, of the fact that the Buddha didn't just free himself, he could free other beings. And when this other being awakens, his friend Kondana, um, though in the Buddhist cosmology, um, there are these many realms of deities that live above the human realm. And the first realm up can feel that, like, whoa, somebody awoken, and they celebrate. And the gods right above that hear their celebration, they look down, and they're like, oh my God, somebody awoken, and they celebrate. And it ripples all the way up. <laughs> so the highest uh, deities are celebrating, like, wow, somebody actually woke. This is cool. So <clears throat> I'm teaching on impermanence and really trying to get people into that, getting to see the experience changes moment by moment, causes that first big awakening. But then to fully free people, you have to deconstruct the felt experience of being a self, of having a lasting self. The you that woke up this morning, something about the you that is here now has not changed. There's something about you that's lasting and permanent. It's such a consistent pattern of thinking that we take it for granted. And we use that as a reference. This is me. I've been named Temple my whole life. So that's one of my permanent characteristics is Temple. I've been male my whole life as a permanent characteristic. And so if it's permanent, I get to rely on it. It's not changing. If it was changing, that would be confusing. So we like to have this reference to ourselves that all experience is changing, 
But if you don't look, you kind of assume that you're not part of what's changing. There's a part of you that's very steady because you're used to you. So being used to you, you don't change. So you actually have to go in very carefully and deconstruct that. You have to go in and feel what's happening and how the sense of self is arising and passing. If you don't look closely at it, you don't realize that it's actually a changing process. The analogy for that is that we live in the Bay Area, and this is one of the great earthquake zones. But if, it, if you go long enough without there being an earthquake, you kind of know that it's true, just like you know everything's impermanent, but you don't live as if that's true. A lot of people stockpile food and water right after an earthquake. <laughs> because it just happened. But people, after a while, they're like, well... And the funny thing is, right after an earthquake, well, maybe a month after an earthquake, the chances of there being another one have actually gone down. But that's when people put their food in storage. And the longer the time goes, and the food begins to spoil, and the water tastes like the plastic containers that it's been sitting in, and you don't replace it, the chances are actually going up that there will be another one. But you begin to kind of like lose the reference, lose that, that insight that we live in an earthquake zone. So if you're not checking into the fact that things are constantly changing, that you're constantly changing, you can get away for a while with a sense of this consistency. I'm the same person I've always been. And yet there's plenty of evidence that's not true. You know, I was born, I was once a little tiny baby, and I'm not that now. And it didn't happen yesterday. It's been happening all along. I've been changing physically. I don't have the same taste in music I used to. I don't have the same taste in food I used to. I don't have the same friends that I used to. I have the same parents, but they've changed. Trying to make my parents um, apologize for things they did 40 years ago. I'm asking the wrong person, because they've, that's 40 years ago to them. They're not the same person. They have to dig way back to remember what it was like when I was young. But a part of me, um, if I want to think they're the same people, I've missed the opportunity that they've changed. They're not completely dissimilar, but they've changed. So we are actually always in a process of change. It's just that, like the hour hand of a clock, it can be so slow that we know that we're changing, but we relate to, we get away with relating to ourselves as if we're fixed experiences. This is who I am, in kind of a solid way, and then trying to take refuge in that. I don't change, so I'm predictable. Life is predictable, at least here is predictable. I don't change. So to get someone fully awakened, to that place of uh, freedom that you'll never get caught, you'll never get disappointed again, you'll never be thrown by reality, you have to go in to find this sense of self that is generated and look at it and see that there actually is a lot of change happening. You know, again, you could look at an hour hand of a clock and if you looked at it and got really patient, you could actually see it creeping. But you have to get very still and see the process is happening. To look at how the self, sense of self is being generated, the Buddha gave the talk on the five aggregates. So if you can begin to see these different pieces and begin to see that they're all rising and passing, nowhere in there could you find a permanent self. So that's the, that's the motivation for um, doing this investigation of the five aggregates. So how does it work? <clears throat> um, we have these sense organs, five of them, so that we can actually begin to relate to our immediate experience. So our ears work all day long, our sight works all day long, a sense of our bodies works all day long, smelling and tasting, they work. And then our mind tends to, our attention tends to scan them all and find the information that it thinks is most important. So it's just scanning all day long, and it uses those five experiences to then create a map of what's going on. And we do this so efficiently that we don't even know that it's happening. This is sort of, we're actually building the world that we're living in. But we're so good at it, we don't see it happening. It's so fast and so uh, seamless that we don't recognize that it's happening. And one a, example of how that happens um, very common to all of us, is that if you look up at the night sky and you see the Big Dipper, it's seven points of light. From our perspective, on this planet, looking in that direction, you see 
four squares in kind of a box, and then three in a bit of a curve. So in art culture, when you look at that, you can kind of see a saucepan. And so your mind goes, seven points of light, Big Dipper. If you're in another part of the world, you look at those seven points of light and you see a horse. It's the body, square body with its neck, or some animal. And so right there, you've taken visual experience and you've added a layer of interpretation. That's the role of perception. That's this role of the, um, the aggregate of perception. You start actually building and weaving your sense of the world. And if you're good at it, it that interpretation really works. So um, because I now know how to drive around Berkeley and Oakland, I've just moved here from San Francisco, I don't get lost anymore. So I, my, the way I've mapped, the way I hold this landscape, um, I can actually drive around and actually connect points that I've never connected before. But I get roughly get the map of how that works. And so I can get from point A to point B very easily. So the internal map I have of this area um, works well enough, unless there's construction and the street is closed. And then this street that I've counted on time and time again to get me through this section of town is closed and I have to suddenly take a left turn and I'm like, oh, I've never been down this street before. Where does this go? And then how do I get from here back to there and then I'm in a neighborhood I've never had to go through before? And the funny thing about that is, is that if you're open to that experience, it's actually kind of fun because suddenly you're in the realm of discovery. You're traveling again. When I first moved over here from San Francisco, I roughly knew the area, but um, because I didn't have my habits and patterns laid down yet, um, everywhere I went was kind of a discovery. And I was like, oh, wow, a whole new neighborhood. Oh, that's an interesting place. Like, oh, wow, well, this is like, so there's a lot of discovery. So that time of you know, not being in my habits and patterns led the world to be very fresh. Just a little bit disoriented, but very fresh. And then the habits began to settle in. And now I know where I like to have my tea. I know where I like to eat. I know where my friends live. And I drive the same stretch of road all the time. I know the quickest way to the traffic and whatnot. I have my patterns. And just the other day I was coming home. I thought, wow, I've... I've never explored this street, one street over from my own street. When I first got here, I was like, oh, this neighborhood, what's it like? And I walked down the street, walked down the street. And the patterns took over, and I got a little busy. And there were a couple of streets I never walked down. So I was going home, and, and I thought, oh, I should go do that. But the habit was there, so it's like, yeah, but we're going home. Like, you just keep going because you know this one. It's like, okay, but what about that one? And, but the momentum wanted to flow down place I'd always been, because it's easy. I can kind of coast there. I can kind of get away on uh, automatic pilot, find my way home that way. But I overrode it, got to a new neighborhood, drove around, got a little lost, a little disoriented, but I discovered, you know, what that neighborhood is like, that, you know, just a couple of streets over from where I live. So these habits that come in, the perception is where we begin to build our sense of reality. And then the, the habits come in and they begin to kind of um, put us often in the same type of relationship we've been in before because it's a habit. If we kept doing new things, we'd always be disoriented. So we tend to, if we're not trying hard enough, find our way into experiences roughly like the ones we've had before. Then we break out a little bit, and then without trying, we come back to our habits and patterns. The mind is very comfortable with what it knows. And so that's that other heap. It's, the word is called sankara. And the sankara really is all the ways that we're wired, um, all the patterns that we've cultivated in ourselves. That's a lot of our experience is, um, I'm a happy person, I'm an angry person. I tend to be adventurous, I tend to like to stay home. These are some of the habits and patterns that govern you. And if you stay roughly in the status quo, you'll roughly work, live within the same habits and patterns that you always have. So <clears throat> this is sort of um, how your life is unfolding. You have habits and patterns. You perceive the world in a certain way. We tend to perceive the world in a way that we're used to because we have references that we're used to and that's what we're using to interpret the world. Right now, all that's really coming out of my 
um, mouth is vibrations. You know, I'm vibrating the air here, it's traveling through the air in the room and it's hitting your ear and your ear is vibrating. But due to cultivation, you can hear that as English. And so we can actually communicate. This is one of the sankharas, one of the habits and patterns of the mind that's very useful. So you and I can communicate because we have the sankharas of English. We have these habits and patterns of how to interpret our world. And then if you have someone with a, speaks a different language that you don't know, you can't understand a word they're saying. You can understand the facial gestures because we have those habits and patterns. We can recognize joy in every culture. We can recognize laughter in every culture. But not necessarily the content of language because we haven't built that in us. The sankharas are what's useful about them is to know this is the way that you are constructing your world and reinforcing your constructions. You build these habits and patterns, then you reinforce them out of comfort, out of predictability. They're how you govern your life. If you have these habits and patterns, these um, relationships that are established in you, and you find yourself frustrated by life, rather than change them, sometimes we keep trying to change our external world because we don't want to change the grooves in our mind. We want to kind of organize the world around us so that we can have uh, more pleasure, more happiness, more love. But <clears throat> if that habit is um, constantly causing you frustration, it's actually the habit you might want to look at. So many of us probably know we have a dating pattern um, back when you were dating, uh, if you're still dating. <clears throat> and it can take a while to recognize that it's not that if you recognize that maybe your relationships for a while were playing out very, in very similar ways and maybe ending in very similar ways, you might for a while blame the people that you're dating until you realize you're the one who's been dating all of them. <laughs> that you're actually what's consistent in that equation. And that begins to actually turn the, the curiosity not on can I find someone else to date, but how am I doing this? How am I going about doing this? So I, I was recognizing some of my dating patterns when I was in my 20s, and it just started to dawn on me, like, I'm actually doing this. I'm actually living out the same relationship. No, not exactly the same, but enough of the patterns that were kind of frustrating, and some of the ones that were fulfilling, but I kept living out patterns. I began to see that I could begin to connect the dots and saw that this was my habits and patterns. And then I watched them. And a new relationship would start. I was like, there, I just made a choice. I chose to respond this way. I felt this and I did that. I did that before and I did it again. This is me constructing my relationship, my relationship strategy. And so this is going to play out in kind of a scripted way because I keep making the same choices, but I'm not aware that I'm making the same choices. It feels like a different situation, but I haven't paid enough attention to see that I'm actually reinforcing this habit and pattern. And then I'm going to try it all over again. I'm going to try it all again. And when you actually start to get tired of your sankharas, when you get tired of the fact that you're being governed and ruled by these habits and patterns, then they actually have a chance to dissolve because you won't reinforce them to the same degree. And you don't actually have to go out and create whole new ones. You just have to stop reinforcing the ones you have and they dissolve. So that's one of the things, just recognizing these habits and patterns that you're living by and then stop reinforcing them. Stop always choosing the same thing and see if you can relax that. And you'll notice that some of your deepest habits have a way of dissolving around that. So that's... <clears throat> That's uh, one part of how we're governed by how we're constructed. Taking information, you're conscious of it. Consciousness is really just like the film in the camera that the light strikes and causes there to be a picture. So you're just aware, 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 aware. That's the role of consciousness. You perceive what's going on. That perception begins to create a story an interpretation of what's happening. That's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then from that, you start to play out the habits and patterns of your mind. 
one of the reasons that we get caught is that in order to um, perceive the world, the world is actually quite chaotic. There's so much information, there's so much sensory information coming by, you'd be overwhelmed if you're open to it all. So we tend to prefer to relate to the simple map of what's going on rather than the reality. So a map of San Francisco, seven by seven place on the planet, has so much information on it, so many streets on it, but it fits in my pocket. So that's a map of San Francisco, but actually being in San Francisco, there are people and traffic and sights and sounds in this neighborhood and that neighborhood and there's is so much going on in San Francisco that is kind of fun, overwhelming, but I have this comfort. Right in the back, I have a map of what's going on. So our perceptions create these maps and we live by these maps. And it's just a little simpler to interface with the world with one, one reference to be the map of what's going on, your interpretation of what's happening. And then making sure you're not too caught in that and you're actually reaching out and trying to have a true relationship with your the outside world as well. But one way is that we've mismapped ourselves is this belief that there's a consistent being here that's not changing. So that's a perception. If you don't look too closely, you'll see that you've mapped yourself out. And if you don't look too closely, you'll be referring to a map of yourself as consistent. But if you do look closely, you'll see you're actually going through a constantly changing process all the time. And this is where the Buddha has this dialogue with his students, these, uh, these friends. He would say, okay, the sensory input, is it changing? Yes, of course, it's, you know, we see it's constantly changing. Is the sense of the pleasant, unpleasant quality of it, is that ever changing? Yes, that's also ever changing. Is your ability to, to perceive what's going on, does that, is that a dynamic process? Is that also ever-changing? Yes, that's also ever-changing. Is your consciousness steady, or does it arise and pass with experience? As we look, we can see it's arising and passing with experience. He says, okay, how about your habits and patterns? Are they reliable? Do they not change? And it's like, no, we can see they also change. There are grooves in our mind, but they're constantly shifting and changing. It's why I don't obsess about chocolate bars like I used to. <laughs> I didn't have to try. Uh, there was just an evolution that happened. You know, my life has been constantly evolving. These habits and patterns, even though they're dug in, they go through a changing process. So I said, is there anything in your experience that is not found as a combination of these five? Is there something else going on to you that's not one of these five. And they look really closely and it's like, that's it, no, that's sight. Okay, I think that's it, no, that's changed. What's going on? And they just scan their experience. If you actually start scanning these five areas, you're like, yeah, everyone's changing. Nothing is actually stable. So what is this sense? Like, there's a somebody here that is witnessing this or owning this or where is the sense of self? And if you look closely, it's like, it arises. You know, I'm scanning the parking lot. Boom, there's my car. That, that little my car. It wasn't there until I perceived it. I perceived it, and then the habit and pattern came up. Bam, my car. Somebody is backing up, and they hit somebody else's car. Hmm, lots of compassion. Somebody's backing up, and they hit my car. Okay, that's a bad day. They hit my car. That's, you know, that's me that they've hit. That's an extension of me that they just backed into. So my whole world changes. They back into somebody else's car, my world doesn't change so much. So <clears throat> that's one of the ways that the sense of self arises. But it arises and we're used to it. And because we're used to it, it feels like it's always there. If you're not looking, it feels like it's persistent. It feels like it's always there. But if you start looking at who is this temple? Who is he? Who is the guy that his, this life is happening to? And I begin to kind of comb through and it's like, where is he? He feels like he's here. I mean, if he's as here as he thinks he's here, he should be able to find, like, you know, where is the hard wood temple? What in here is not changing? And you look and it's just 
If you're not looking close enough, it feels very real. But as soon as you look at it, you see that it's just experiences also passing through. It's just a sense of self that's passing through, just like a car driving by. is a sense of self flowing through you. But it's, it's fairly steady in its arising and passing, and so it feels like you can count on it. But if you look at it, there isn't anything there to actually land on. There actually is no concrete sense of self, no concrete self. self. There's just a sense of self. So he goes through, and he has these guys do this investigation. Is it all changing? Yes, we found everything are changing. He said, well, if it's changing, uh, is it reliable? Like, no, it's not reliable because it's constantly changing. So I can't necessarily take uh, refuge in it. It's constantly changing. And do you find that stressful? It's like, yeah, actually, I do find that stressful. If I actually existed, I could find that um, reliable. But because I'm constantly in flux, that's a little bit stressful. It's a little bit confusing. It's like, well, if you're, if the, you're in a constant state of flux, what would you call self? What would you grab onto and say, this is who I am, a strong conviction? And it's like, well, we can't find anything. And when he asks that question and they do that investigation and they see, yeah, there's actually nothing here that is lasting. There's just patterns playing out. And they have some type of consistency that the patterns play out. You know, I'm usually very happy when I see my dad's dog. <laughs> and I'm happy when I see my dad too, but I'm much more reliably happy when I see his dog. Because uh, his dog is um, a very happy dog. So it's easy. That's very consistent. Until the, uh, I had to take a bone out of the dog's mouth. And then he broke the consistency. <laughs> we became enemies for a second. But for the most part, he's very consistent. <clears throat> and my dad, my relationship with him is fairly consistent, but it also goes through changes, right? So these five people have this insight. They do this investigation. They look at these, these areas of their lives, they, the areas of their experience. They don't find anything consistent. And all five of them have their full awakened experience. And what that means is, by seeing it closely, they never again perceive a sense of solidity to self, a concrete self, a non-changing self. Once they witnessed it, it never recoalesced. It's like, um, I don't know, like seeing through the Big Dipper. Or no, no, here's one. Uh, Being on the Earth, it feels fairly flat, and the sun seems to move. Yet, if asked, hopefully most of the people in the room would say, no, the sun's fairly steady and we're the ones. We're actually on a really big ball. I feel it feels flat and it's, it's actually going around the sun. That's our paradigm now. It wasn't our paradigm three, four hundred years ago. That's our paradigm now. Your paradigm, when you do the type of investigation that leads to this, the paradigm is, yeah, it's all in flux. It's just, I'm a fluctuating entity Yet there are patterns, yet those patterns change over time. So if you can hold that as your, not just intellectual paradigm, but your living paradigm, nowhere in there can there be stress and disappointment. The stress and disappointment comes from needing things to be permanent when they can't be, or needing there to be a concrete self when there isn't. Those two misunderstandings cause us to get frustrated because things are constantly changing. Like, if you really need there not to be earthquakes, you're living in the wrong place. <laughs> if you really need not to be stressed and disappointed by life, you're living in the wrong realm. If that strategy is that I need things to be permanent and I don't want to be disappointed, or I need myself to be reliable instead of as chaotic as I, or, as I am, I need there to be reliability. As you try that strategy, you will constantly frustrate yourself. Yet if you can live forward, walk forward, and allow yourself to be fluid and ever-changing, you can rely on that fluidity, and you can also rely on the fact that there are some patterns that are slowly changing. And so I'm not so fluid that I won't know who I am tomorrow. 
I'm not so fluid that my friends can't count on me. In fact, the more I actually live in accord with who I am, I'm actually much more reliable because I'm not trying to sell people my consistent self, which doesn't actually fit tomorrow. I'm able to meet them with the self that I have and trust that there are patterns there that are reliable. I know who my friends are, I know who my family is, but I'm also open to new friends. I also can let my friends change. And from that, there's really no way to cause stress. I was talking to a, a friend today, we were talking about if you had a, a knife and you were stabbing water, the water wouldn't be a lot of motion, but the water would just keep moving around the blade and you can't really hurt water with a knife. So no matter, if you have a fluid sense of yourself, there's really no place, you can't stress water. It just tends to reorganize itself immediately to whatever it's encountering. And the same is true of a free self. And that's the freedom that the Buddha felt. And that's the freedom that his first five students uh, found within just a week of living with them. <laughs> so it's possible. I think um, I'll stop there and see if there are any questions about that um, or any of your own reflections on that. And I'm wondering if any of you would, uh, if one of you would be a mic runner um, to see if there are any questions that we could actually put it through the mic. So does anybody have any questions about that model or what it's been like for you to experience that, um, the free side of that or being on the caught side of that understanding? I like to quote uh, Wes Nisker, who comes and talks sometimes, and he says, uh, you have to have a self before you can lose it. Mm. So <laughs> there's always that part, too, because yeah. it's, there's all these dichotomies, you know, because it's yeah. important to have a sense of self but not get caught up in it either, you know, right. because um, I think it's very dangerous not to have a sense of self also. And, yeah. And or a sense that I have some way of influencing who I am and that fluidity, you know. And, um, right. And I, and also my own experience is that, you know, I go through, I seem to go through periods where I get really frustrated with myself that I haven't learned hmm. a lesson that seems to repeat itself and it's a pattern and I feel very stuck in and, I know from doing practice here, um, I often try to remind myself that it's a it's a place to build compassion, and that's mm. actually huge for me and yeah. what I want in my life. Mm. And if that's what I'm asking for, then I'm going to have all this awareness <laughs> about where places that I annoy myself, <laughs> mm. and that you know, and that's best place I can build compassion actually. Yeah. I cannot build it for anything or anyone outside myself until yeah. I you know, and I even see that in my world like I people who have the same challenges as I do I have immense compassion for and people who have different challenges than me, I struggle with having compassion for them. Yeah. You know, and so I'm Every time something new comes up, I just realize that, you know, if if I have a chance of building compassion around this too, mm. this too, then yeah. I actually will build more relationships and more love and mm. more um, unity with more and more people in my life. So that's kind of how I deal with it, and I do know that you know, these things are here, and they will be, and this is, it's hard sometimes to hear the whole, the Buddha path, and he just awoke, you know, but it was lifetimes, and yeah. sometimes I struggle with um, how far, how many more lifetimes I have to be a Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> One lifetime at a time. So. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it tends to be how we actually go about deconstructing these habits, is that there are some places we can show up and 
find compassion and find um, enough intimacy with, with what's going on and non-reactivity that we actually see what's happening and from that relax the pattern. But there are other areas where that's not quite possible yet. And one time I was traveling with my uh, good friend Pascal, who's also a teacher, and we would walk off a bus in Burma at the exact same time, but due to his perceptions and his sankaras, his experience of that town would go very differently, and mine would go another way. And it was just fascinating to see, given how he's constructed, he plays out these habits and patterns. Given how I'm constructed, I play out these habits and patterns. And then from that, there's a way that you can actually uh, encourage a type of self-intimacy that does allow things to relax. And that relaxing, it, they need to be able to relax before they'll um, transform. And if you can't relax a part of your psycho structure, uh, your sankaras, then they can't really transform. And so it takes compassion, it takes a sense of, um, you have to have enough safety, faith, and trust to come into intimacy with your direct experience for that habit and pattern to begin to evolve. And if you can't evolve a certain um, uh, sankara, a certain habit and pattern, chances are that it's serving you in some way, and not, it's serving you to help hold your world together. And so, being a bit reckless with self-transformation, um, you can put so much into motion that your world kind of falls apart. You actually need some of these habits and patterns to kind of guide you through a day and you end up evolving the ones that are evolvable at that time in your life. And then when you find the ones that can't, they just take patience. I was once on a long retreat and it was my first long retreat. And it was interesting, at the end of that three-month retreat, some habits and patterns had not changed. But I'd given them the same encounter every day, but they were very tenacious. And when I was younger, that was very frustrating. But as I developed the practice, I began to see that those were actually um, much more crucial to how I was holding my mind together than the things I could change. Yet with a little more practice and a little bit more growth, they were able to change. So there's a timing to how we uh, awaken, and it does take you know, patience and self-care all along the way. Are there any other uh, questions or comments? I think this is a comment. <laughs> we'll see where it goes. Um, so I just turned 40, and when you said something about uh, 40 years ago and about your parents, I had a response that I've had recently with someone else talking about being in their early 40s, of thinking that was someone considerably older than me, and then having to sort of step back and, and re... and. Uh, over the last month or so, I've been feeling sort of disoriented and confused about what my feelings about turning 40 were. Mm. And as you spoke, I thought, oh, I guess this is sort of an opportunity. My, my identity is being kind of shaken up by yeah. some idea I have about what the number 40 means right. and some sense I have of who I have been, who I should be now, mm. how it's supposed to be the same, what it all means. Mm. And at the same time, I'm kind of having a rifling of photographs of my life go through my head. Mm. Um, which is really just saying that I'm not permanent and I'm changing. <laughs> so, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I had a similar thing recently when I turned 40. Uh, everything just began to kind of shake very deeply. Um, and some things just didn't make it into my 40s that were really much more about being younger, and I like them, but when they began to kind of loosen up and something else grew in its place, which is kind of nice, but I didn't know that at the time. So it just felt like a big um, rolfing, like the universe was <laughs> really working me to kind of get the old knots and tensions out. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks. So that's the close of the evening, um, just to dedicate what's called dedication of merit. Have you, as you sat here in practice <clears throat> and listened and connected with your friends or met people here tonight, um, all that we've been able to cultivate here, uh, it's its own taste of the path. The calm when sitting or not, but the patience to be with that. Where your heart may have been touched, the willingness to come here, the willingness to stay here, um, all that combined. It has a way of changing us. And so we, we dedicate that so that it's not a lost experience to ourselves and others that the reason we're flowing forward and awakening is to alleviate some of our own suffering or to awaken to possibilities we know are there. We just need to cultivate them for ourselves. But that automatically ends up transforming the people you meet So to dedicate anything that's happened tonight so that it flows forward with you and goes out to reach the world, we dedicate the merit. So if you are comfortable putting your hands together. May anything that's occurred tonight that is positive, that is healthy, that is about opening and care and respect, may it flow forward from this experience and impact myself and the people I meet. And maybe ripple out in ways I can't actually perceive, but I have faith that when a pebble is tossed in a pond, the ripples reach all points of the shore. So even small actions done consciously have a way of rippling out very far, dedicating momentum, things experienced, so that they do ripple out and touch ourselves in the future and many more beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.